turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 5. I'll read the first seven verses and we'll go through this together. Starting at verse 1. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song to my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a winepress therein and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And it will lay, and I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, and behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry. And that is the reading of God's holy and precious word. May he bless it to us as we go into these things. Isaiah, as many of us probably know, if you don't know, Isaiah was a prophet long ago. There are 66 books or 66 chapters, 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters in Isaiah. And I've mentioned this before, that uh, it has been referred to as the fifth gospel. There are many um, gospel promises in Isaiah and many warnings in Isaiah as well. Isaiah cared about Israel. He cared about it very much. And... He would refer to it as a sinful nation, as we read in chapter 1. He talks about how they had sinned. Now, the nation of Israel at this time was very religious, yet they loved the things of other nations, and they would get punished for it. And there was a warning that had come to them through the prophet Isaiah. Did you? It was said of many theologians that Isaiah himself, through all of his warnings at the end of his life, he was the very one spoken in 
uh, Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter of faith where he actually was sawn in half. So anytime you tell the truth, you're going to suffer persecution for it. Uh, this is just the way it's always been. You know, we have a lot of people in society today that says we need to speak truth to power. Truth to power. Well, as Christians, we speak truth to an evil and perverse generation that we've been dealing with ever since the fall. Sin has always been an issue. And Isaiah was a very great orator. He could speak very well. He was very articulate, something that I'm trying to achieve in my own speech um, as, as we try and perfect uh, preaching and teaching. We teach those things to the downline um, so that they can uh, be preachers of righteousness, like the people that are teaching these young kids in the classes on Sunday, telling them about the gospel, training them up in the way that they shall go, trusting in the promise that God will have them to become preachers of truth. Truth to a world that is infected with sin. Uh, he speaks of this Zion, which is national Israel, as a sinful city. There was many things going on in that city which were very sinful. And you can make comparisons. If you read this on your own, just think of where you are today in America. There's many sins in America that are very prevalent. You turn on the TV and it's just in your face 24-7 all the time. You turn on the radio, it's just being promoted everywhere. Our pastor has been speaking against it for many, many years. And so we have children, many of us, and we care about our children and we want them to know truth. And some of us have children that have gone astray they have bought into the things of the world or they're testing these boundaries and these hedges which we have read about in Isaiah chapter 5 here. So then he goes on in chapter 2 just to kind of move forward to talk about true peace because as he speaks out against the sins of Israel, national Israel, he then brings in the gospel equation which is, as some theologians would call, um, a parable to throw alongside, to put alongside these um, things that are said against Israel. But then he talks about there's a true peace that uh, is to be had. And the true believer, what is the true believer? The one who can hear God's word, right? My people hear my voice. Isn't that what the scriptures teach? So they'll hear in all of this sin that's taking place and everything that's being spoken about sin sin what is sin sin is the transgression of god's law so when we transgress we have a, a, a faithful savior isaiah knew this savior he spoke about him but he also talks about the proud those who are not listening with spiritual ears understanding the scriptures as a proud people that will be destroyed. He says, therefore, in chapter 2 and verse 6, thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because he replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines. Now, what is a soothsayer? A soothsayer is like, just to make it very easy for us to understand, many of us, if not all, um, I've met many of you, have come out of false gospels, 
where there's something else being said other than the gospel, where they'll say, do this and live. They'll say, if you do this, you're going to be right with God. If you speak in this tongue here, you'll be right with God. If you do this, God will show favor to you. But we preach a sovereign free grace that is given to, uh, to us by God freely. It's a free gift. What is a gift? If I give something to you, I'm not expecting anything in return. It's yours to have. It's your gift. For we are saved by grace through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, least any should boast, right? So it's a gift given to us. But a soothsayer is saying something different, something different from what historically Isaiah was saying here in the text. And he was comparing them like the Philistines, which were idolatrous people who worshipped idols and they lived by the sea and they had all kinds of sea creatures and things that they thought were God, which were not that some of these people in national Israel would want to worship. And they pleased themselves in the children of strangers. And there you have it. They always sought after other nations. And you can hear it just to make this applicable to what our pastor has been saying every Sunday is that they would always complain to Moses and they would always refer back to how good they had it in Egypt. And this was the constant theme that you hear from these people that were always complaining and God would punish them. But there were always those within that group that understood the truth and believed in God who delivered them by an outstretched and mighty arm to deliver them from Egypt, who departed the Red Sea and had them walk on dry shod, on dry ground across, and then destroyed Pharaoh's army. Those were the kind of memories they would have to keep. And that's what I am trying to implore with you today, is that we have to keep the memory of that which God has done both for us and historically throughout every generation. You see, God is faithful, we're not. God is holy, we're not. But he comes with an outstretched and mighty arm, just as he did with those who were in Egypt under hard labor, where Pharaoh was trying to have every baby from those women aborted, but yet they were lively women and trusted God and kept on giving birth in hard labor, and God delivered them because he heard their cry. And those were the kind of things that would always be talked about amongst these children that were in that time to remind them that God is faithful. Trust him. Trust him. And it was always the rebel that would question and not want to bring up the blessings that they've been blessed with. And God judges Judah and Jerusalem, as Isaiah says in chapter 3. And then he talks about how the women conducted themselves. They were proud. They wanted to be seen. They would wear things to cause attention to be brought on them that was much like today where women are dressing inappropriately and they would wear bells on the bottom of their feet so they could be known. It's much like Facebook today. You know, everyone wants to do a selfie. I'm guilty. I've done a few selfies. But who wants to look at my ugly mug? But uh, this is where it is today. It's much like it was back then. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. That which has been is, and that which will be has been. There's nothing new under the sun. 
but he also talks about the future of Jerusalem. And he talks about, in verse 4 of chapter 4, the future of Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have watch, washed away. Now that's gospel language, right? So there, there's people in these times that were doing all these abominable things, but God had a chosen people, chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. We see this in New Testament language. We can look back in Old Testament language and see how God was working in the Old Testament the same way he works today. When the Lord will have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Now we can say that refers to women, but it also refers to men because remember, there are two Israels. There is one that is a false Israel and there is one that is a true Israel. Remember Paul said in chapter 9 of Romans around that chapter, he said, not all Israel is Israel. And I would add to that that not all Christians are Christian. Does that make sense? Right, so we need to be born again. We need to have a, a heart of stone removed. We'll see that a little bit later. So when the Lord shall have washed away. Now what happens for that to take place? What has to take place in the believer for something to be washed away? What does the Bible say? It says, if you confess your sins... He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you, to wash you from all of your filthiness. So there is something that is prescribed to us there that if these people are washed, there is a reason why they're being washed because they have come to that point of repentance. They have come to that point of really looking into God's word and seeing in history Remember, history means his story. All these things were taking place, and every time the people rebelled, they were punished. And some of those would see the punishments and repent and say, God, have mercy. I am a sinner. Save me. Have mercy upon me. Wash me. And how do we get washed? We get washed by his word, by the washing of, renew, uh, of the spirit, the renewing of our mind, and we get washed by the word, the washing of regeneration. It reminds me of those who want to believe we have the will to be able to choose God and to have all these things happen by a decision we make. The Bible does not teach decisional regeneration. Regeneration is not done by a decision. It's done by a sovereign God who pours grace upon us that mercy and then gives us faith to connect us, which is a mechanism that our pastor has talked about, the mechanism that connects us to God, much like a conduit. There are pipes going through here connecting all these things together. We have a conduit called faith that connects us to God. And through that, he fuels the believer with grace and mercy. That's what faith runs on and love, right? Faith works by love. So those things are the very thing that fuels us in our relationship with God. So when he says here in verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Let me make one more point. The daughters of Zion, remember, we are the church. The church is referred to as a woman, not a man. 
We are the bride of Christ. We are that daughter. We are of the daughters that will be married to Christ. They will be washed the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Therefore, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. This judgment was what I was talking about earlier. They would see these judgments taking place and it would cause people to see. God has to open our eyes to be able to see what is taking place in our world. He has to open our eyes to be able to see that this whole business about national Israel over there and the Palestinians and the narrative of Christians isn't to be seen anywhere in this. It's all about uh, the Jews and the Muslims. Well, why aren't you talking about the Christians? Uh, the Christians were saved there first 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, but yet they're not part of the narrative. But many people can't even see this. And so it is my understanding from what Scripture teaches is that people are under a strong delusion. They're under a strong delusion. The Jew is no better than the Palestinian. The Palestinian is no better than the Jew. Is not God the God of them both? And the God of us, isn't that Pauline's theology that the true Jew is one circumcised in the heart and that without hands? This is the whole New Testament language. That's why they despised Paul. They despised Paul because he taught that the Jews are no more special than the Gentile and the Gentiles no more special than the Jew. It is the power of God unto salvation that saves both Jew and Gentile. And we still see this all throughout Scripture, even in the Old Testament. Our pastor had talked about Naaman the leper. He was the only leper that was cleansed back in that day. In Luke chapter 4, when our Lord spoke about he was the only leper, and there were many lepers, yet he was a Gentile, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. They wanted to kill our Lord for talking about God having mercy upon a Gentile, an enemy, an arch enemy of Israel. So we know God saves sinners, and this we know. Amen? Are you guys with me tonight? Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. So moving to uh, the parable of the vineyard, which is a, a wonderful parable. A parable is something that goes alongside. You see the future of Jerusalem. So this is going alongside what is being taught, and it's... Uh, like an analogy, something that's given to kind of describe the condition of things that are taking place. And he uses this parable of the vineyard. What's the significance of this first verse in chapter 5, which I see in our text here, um, that I will sing to my well-beloved a song. One of the beauties of singing, and I'm trying to work on my singing, um, it's a, it's a way to help you remember things. You know, you can remember songs easier than you can maybe a math equation. So perhaps you have to learn how to sing the math equation. Does anyone have that problem or is it just me? But singing is a good way to remember things. So often we're told in Scripture that they would sing these things, and we'll see this as we go forward. And so let us truly understand as we open up this text in Isaiah chapter 5, we are looking onto the Lord Jesus, as would Isaiah and those listening. 
that he was the author and finisher of their faith and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even Isaiah would see this in chapter 6 when you see um, as he's looking to this temple and sees the smoke-filled room and he sees Yahweh, he sees Christ on the throne. Isaiah saw Christ in his day. So this song that's being sung, Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. So point, point A, a perfecting of a song in the heart of God's people. So all throughout Scripture, and I'll use a few verses just to kind of show us the beauty of, a, of, of singing and the beauty of a song, that God has always put a song into his people so that they could remember how they've been blessed. This is a way we can deal with what we're going through today as we sing hymns every Sunday. Uh, a lot of times when I'm going through some things, those hymns will pop into my mind and they'll help me to deal with the trials and with the tribulations, because many of those hymns are actually singing promises that God has given us all throughout Scripture. We read in Psalm 40, verse 3, this first place that I'll go to to show us where David, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And I have put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Is it possible that God could give us a song, a Christian in this day we live in, where the unbeliever, if they were to see that we were singing in such a way where we totally believe what we were singing, that it actually has a, a power to it, so to speak, that would cause people to actually fear Things can get so bad that if people hear you singing, remember Paul and Silas when they were in jail? And they, they had nothing to hope for. And those prisoners were listening to them singing, right? And what happened? God honored their singing, and the doors of the prison were opened. And remember the Philippian jailer would wonder, how was this happening? Was like an angel of the Lord opened those things up? And they came out, and the Philippian jailer thought, it, this is sure death to me. And he was about to fall on his sword, and Paul told him, don't do that. Don't, do not fall on your sword. Salvation has come. It's going to come to your house, and it came to all those prisoners. And that's how the Philippian church got started, got started in a prison. So it's the wonderful power of singing that can cause those who see it to fear and then to in turn trust in the Lord. And then you can go all the way, all throughout Scripture, you can see this through the Scriptures. We've been seeing it in the Psalms every, every week. Praise the Lord, sing unto the Lord, praise the Lord. Then you go all the way to the book of Revelation and you can see it being summed up that they sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy, they're singing to the Lord, to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for you were, was slain, you were slain, 
and you've redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is what they sang. And that's what's missing today, dear saints, is that this whole Palestinian and Israel conflict, Jewish conflict, and every other nation, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in uh, Ireland, they got the North and the South Ireland fighting with each other. This is the answer to all this fighting is that we have a king, his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is who the Christian sings to. We worship the Prince of Peace. He is the God-man who sits at the right hand of the Father, and we sing to him. And he's saving out of every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue. And he is no respecter of persons. No matter what skin color you are, what cultural background you've been brought up into, you are without excuse. And this is the way of escape of eternal damnation and judgment. Didn't he tell us clearly when he told us in John chapter 3? And this is the condemnation that men love darkness and not the light. Yes, dear saints, this is the answer to all this craziness into the world that uh, everyone's fighting with each other. That this is the one that's redeemed the Christian, the true child of God by his blood. And he is saved out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And so here we are in Isaiah where he's saying, Now I will sing of my well-beloved. See, God loved the people that he had brought up, that had carried the oracles. And there was the true people that he truly loved within this group. But there were those rebels within, within that group. There's always been a theological argument. Well, how could God love somebody if you end up in hell? But yet the scriptures teach us these were his beloved. These were his people. And they had done these things over and over and over again. And you have to make the distinction that his true beloved will come out of their sins and their rebellion. And they will trust him. And he's singing to his beloved about a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it in. We've been talking about being hedged in and protected from all the snakes out there and all the evil forces that want to do us harm, our children. We pray that our children will be hedged in. This is a, a profession of a vin, a vin dresser and a predestination that this profession is coming from God himself, and he's speaking about the nation of Israel and all that he had done for the nation of Israel. And then he goes into what they had done. He fenced it in. He gathered out the stones thereof. Why a vineyard? Why a vineyard? Why something that would make wine? This has been with us all throughout scriptures. You can go back to Genesis chapter 9, verses 20 and 21, where you see when Noah had come to dry ground, what is the first thing he did? He built a vineyard. And then I was asked long ago, well, what is the spiritual significance of Noah building a vineyard after he had gotten to dry ground, him and the seven souls that were with him? Well, the simple answer is, if you saw the world being destroyed 
and you did not see a bumper sticker that says, Smile, God loves you, and you saw people drowning and dying everywhere, wouldn't you want a drink? Now, that's just reality. We all have our vices. I'm not condoning uh, alcoholism by any means, but it is a double-edged sword, much like our pastor had talked about the very poison of the bitten Israelites that were rebelling against Moses and against God as they were bitten by the serpents, would look to a fiery serpent upon a pole. The very poison becomes the very cure. It was nice to hear about the difference between a seraph and a snake, and the two differences. But oftentimes, the poison itself becomes the cure. So with much like that, with wine, it's a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whoever's Deceived by it is not wise. That's what we're taught by Solomon. Solomon told Lamel, wine is not for kings. But we're talking about the end of the world and a new beginning with Noah. And he had to populate the world again. And he, first thing he did was he had this vineyard that he took with him. And he had it in the boat. And he cared for it. Because God, in a spiritual way, has always been taking care of his church, which he refers to as a vineyard. And vineyards are very hard to take care of. There are many things that go after a vineyard, from the soil and all the things that are minerals. Some grapes can't survive in too rich a soil. Some grapes survive better in soils that have rocks and are hard pressed to go down, so they suffer. And when they suffer, these vines, they produce sweeter grapes sounds kind of like us right when we suffer we become sweeter christians because we understand that uh who are we who are we to boast anything right god will use our suffering and turn us into sweet christians we don't want to be proud christians we talked about this about the proud and about those who are in this nation but those sweet Christians are the ones that are going through the worst trials and they produce sweet grapes which produce sweet wine. These are all spiritual, spiritual, because what does wine do? It cheers the saddened heart, but it can deceive the young man void of discretion where he'll drink all night and he'll drink to where his eyes turn red and he looks into the glass and he sees silly women dancing and he gets involved in things he's not supposed to, and he finally wakes up, and then he says, I'll do it again. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a wine that is the gospel wine that relieves us of all of our stress. It doesn't give us a headache. It doesn't cause us to get hungover. It causes us to be relieved Every time we partake of the Lord's table, this is what the, vine, the vineyard produces. Its end result is that gospel wine. So there's a vine dresser, and there's a predestination for every believer. We've been seeing this vineyard ever since the time of Noah. 
We know that wine maketh the heart glad, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread that strengthens man's heart. That's in Psalm 104, verse 15. That wine makes, the, makes a glad heart, but it can also be deceptive. as a double-edged sword to be careful with. And we were reminded of this when we look at Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Remember, this vineyard that's here has been going all throughout Scripture, and then we see what it represents in its final destination is when our Lord took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given to you, this do in remembrance of me, take and eat. And then he also said, This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, this do ye in remembrance of me, take the wine and drink. So ultimately we see Christ in this when we think of the vineyard. And so we'll see the purpose of a very fruitful hill planted. The purpose of gospel wine, we see that wine is the very thing that makes the heart glad. We see that that was the first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, this came out of a vineyard and that wedding of uh, that first miracle in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and this uh, wedding in Cana of Galilee, it was some of the best wine and it was served last and the governor of that uh, marriage said normally when you get wine we're given the more the less expensive wine at at the end but you have given us the choicest wine at the end of this marriage and of course all this is in reference to the history of the nation of Israel that the choice wine is Christ himself the folly there is a folly with worldly wine as I mentioned earlier I'm kind of was going off my notes, but I got my notes in front of me. But it does say in Proverbs chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, that wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. There is another wine spoken about in the book of Revelation. It was that whorish woman that rode upon the beast, and she had a cup in her hand, and in it was filled the wine. And it was a picture of the blood of the saints as she went persecuting the saints. But let us look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. Let us keep Christ in view. As we look here and we see this vineyard spoken about in Isaiah, I don't want to get too far off track, that we know that this should, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes, the nation of Israel. But let us keep Christ. Remember, the book speaks of Christ. Then said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. This is a, a verse that we uh, refer to in reference to uh, Psalm 40 to let us truly understand that the Hebrew writer was saying this was speaking of Christ when the Hebrew, when the Hebrew writer is uh, quoting uh, Psalm 40. And so... When we have a vineyard, one of the most important things we have, and let's think of the vineyard as a church, it needs maintenance, maintenance. If you don't maintain the vineyard, what happens? Well, we see here, it grows forth wild grapes. That's when the vines are not manicured, 
we live in California, so a lot of us get to drive by these big vineyards, and you can see how they're all manicured, so they're all doing the same thing in a uniform fashion. Some of them uh, are on trestles like that, and some of them are what's called head pruned, where they become like little trees, but they all look the same. They're all in uniform. They're all manicured. Then if you go to a vineyard that hasn't been maintenanced, what you see is the grapes, vines, if you have some in your yard and you don't cut them, and you don't know where to cut where the bud is and keep them manicured, they'll grow everywhere. And they become very wild in the, the way they look. And if you don't do it correctly, the grapes won't be as sweet because now that the, the vines are going so far out, it's taking from what a closer uh, grape cluster may get um, if there was not such a large or long vine with it. So maintenance is what we see in the church. If we are to compare this vineyard here to the church, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's turn there in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, there is a way in all practicalness to maintain the church. First, we can make it very practical. You guys here on a Tuesday night, we're here for prayer, which we'll be doing in about 30 minutes. That is a way we maintain as a vineyard, as a church, to call upon God to make sure that His Holy Spirit is making sure that we are maintained and that we have a manicure uh, that is perfect in God's sight. And there are means to do that. Where it says, I have planted, this is Paul speaking, Apollos watered. This is the preaching of the gospel. Paul went around and he was planting churches. Apollos was a preacher, a pastor, and he was watering. And they understood it wasn't them. They never gave themselves the credit for it. They didn't boast in what they were doing. They simply said, God is giving the increase. So then neither it is he that planteth anything, neither it is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. See the beauty in giving God all the glory and everything so that no one can rise above the other and say, I'm better somehow. Isn't it great that God is not um, partial, that he's impartial with every one of us? The only difference between maybe me and you is that I'll have the stronger judgment because I'm up here trying to teach you the Bible. That's a scary predicament, but I'm no better. God has just given me the privilege to be able to speak to you, and hopefully he's using me to speak something to you that will comfort you. That's what he commands the preacher to do, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. We're working as a team. It is a, a unity that takes place with, within the church. Let every man esteem others higher than themselves. Isn't that what was told to, to the Philippian church? And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. So that goes back to the title of this lesson. This is a lot of labor goes into the maintenance of a church. A lot of labor. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There is a work that takes place. It's not a work that we're trying to work into heaven. It's a work, it's a labor of love through faith. And that's what we are doing as believers in the church. It's not a meritorious salvation. It's a salvation of relationship. We have a relationship with God and therefore we work accordingly for the glory of God. 
So that's what it says in that particular verse. We also have here in our text in Matthew chapter 5, it was the choicest vine and built a tower. What is the name of the Lord? It's a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and are safe. A watchtower is always watching over the church, watching over the vineyard. It is a bird's eye view to make sure that we are knowing the estate of the flock, making sure the, sh the sheep are safe, so to speak, or the vineyard from birds that would come down and seek to take those things which we're trying to produce, which is the gospel. This is spiritual now. But what of these stones? Look that it should bring forth grace, but it came and it brought forth wild grapes. O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. And now go to, I, I will tell you, I will do to my vineyard, I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. Now that's a scary thought, that God would take his hedge of protection away from the church, away from his people. What we desire to have a maintenance protected church is that God would take out the stones so that the ground would be fertile, so that the ground would, would be in a position to be able to take roots from a vine and go down deep. So sometimes doing that is to take out the stones that are in the dirt. And what do we know about stones? Our hearts are stony before we're saved, right? And God takes out the heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is something that can take uh, roots to it, whereas a stone would reject them. So we read in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 through 37, but he that received the seed, this choice vine, into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and with joy receives it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dearth. Let's see, this is a different translation. Yet hath not root in himself, yet dearth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth of the, of the word, and by he is offended, so he's offended by the word of God because his heart is stony. It does not take root. And then he says there's thorns if it's not manicured and it's not if the weeds and the thorns that are trying to take over the vineyard or the heart. He also that receives seed among the thorns. He is that heareth the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and becometh unfruitful. So we want to have a ground that is free from thorns and thistles, free from stones that choke the rooting that takes place. And so 
we can know that those who receive seed in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. So we know the scriptures in Hosea. Hosea, going back to this minor prophet, as they would call or refer to him, he says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. And he says, Break up the fallow ground, for it is time for you to seek the Lord. That stony, thorny, unmaintenanced ground needs to be broken up, retilled, just like the fig tree. Remember the fig tree that was cursed? He said, Dung it dig it up and dung it that means to put fertilizer in it make it so that it'll grow these are the things that we need to be doing to make sure that we're on the right path sow to yourselves in righteousness reap in mercy break up the fallow ground how do you break up the fallow ground well there's one way i can think of it if the bible tells us that the word is light and we by nature hate the light and love evil, it's probably a good idea to stay in the light. So stay in the light. The light can hurt you. It may appear to hurt you, but it's actually doing you good. It's actually pulling things out and taking things away so that it can produce fruit. So in the light of God's word, which we can say is the son of God's grace and mercy, as it would give health to those things which are seeking to grow that are good and maintenanced the holy spirit would work these things out to sow to ourselves in righteousness reap in mercy break up the fallow ground for it is time to seek the lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you and isn't that our prayer father help us to surrender every past experience every un healed hurt every unresolved issue have mercy upon us isn't this why we come to the lord in prayer take away these things which are stony which are causing us not to take root into your word the way we should take away these cares and these riches that so choke us is anyone in debt we're in a debt time this is debt time this economy is seeking to choke us so please be aware and live frugally right now because we it could only get it's probably only going to get worse if god is merciful he'll send somebody and tweak the levers of whatever powers that be to go another way but it is at these times when we're tried the most that we are, our focus will be either directly on christ himself and that's a good thing isn't that just the way the lord has worked throughout history he has to put us through these trying times to get our attention so it is indeed the time to break up our fallowed ground so that we can bear the fruits of righteousness we also want a protection because of the choicest vine and we want the stone to be removed it's a stone removing plan We have a premise, which is the church, and we need the hedge of protection. We need to make sure that the roots penetrate the earth of our heart so that it'll bring forth uh, 
the belief and faith in the promises that are given in Scripture. And we can get this through the power of the wine press that is preached. And we'll get to that. What is that wine press? We've got to get there. The premises that are hedged with protection. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, this protection. We see this all throughout Scripture, that God would take and put a wall around Jerusalem round about. Uh, Solomon, King Solomon in 1 Kings 3.1 made an affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. Many theologians believe this was done for political reasons. But in a type and in a picture and in a shadow of things to come, on the one hand, Solomon, he represents a type of Christ when he would take from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue daughters from other nations and love them. Just as Christ would take us out of our own nations and our own tribes and our own tongues and bring us into his uh, chambers, so to speak. So he took Pharaoh's daughter and he brought her onto the city of David until he made an, an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord. And what did he do for that house? He put a wall, of, uh, a wall around Jerusalem to protect it. And that's what we desire is to have that wall of protection where we know Christ is protecting us through the borders, through the walls, so that no foreigner would come in to seek and, and, and hurt us. You can see this on a national level. The border is being uh, taken down and many people are coming in and they appear to be middle-aged men. Um, are they here for our good? Are they here because they love America and they love the principles of freedom? All the blessings that we have received from our founding fathers who took great uh, care in the way they wrote the Constitution based upon biblical principles? I hope so. But the borders have always been to demonstrate protection. Even in Rome, when Rome would fall, those borders were taken down and they would have people come in to destroy Rome. So history has repeated itself when borders fall. Just keep that in mind. Let us pray that God will have mercy upon us and that nobody is coming into our nation to seek us harm. But more and more as we go on, we're seeing the freedom of speech, like our freedom to be able to assemble and have a Bible study and speak or have a dissent of what's taking place in our government. People are actually being put in prison right now. They're being put in prison for freedom of speech. So these things are coming upon us. Let us pray for mercy. Do good in your pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. This is what the psalmist said in Psalm 51. We also see it in Isaiah uh, 22.10 when Isaiah is talking about what is taking place. And he says, and you have numbered the houses of Jerusalem and the houses have you broken down to fortify the wall because of their neglect, because of their ignorance, because of their lack of understanding history, because of their lack of keeping the song that was sung to them, that they could sing it to their children. As we see in verse one here, 
this is what was taking place, that the fortified wall was being taken down. So you had Assyria and you had Babylonian uh, forces that were seeking to besiege and take over Jerusalem. Let us not forget the law. The law is good. There's nothing uh, bad about the law. The law exposes. The law tells us we're sinful. The law lets us know we need a savior. How often are we not hearing the Ten Commandments that we should have no other gods before us, that we should not make any idols, that we should not take the Lord's, uh, your God's name in vain, that we should remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Now, we're not Sabbatarians, but we do believe that God himself, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our Sabbath. He is our rest. We believe that the Bible is true, that we should honor our father and our mother, that we should not murder, that we should not commit adultery, that we should not steal, nor should we bear false witness, and no, should, we should not covet our neighbor's things. These are just ten commandments that are given that we've all broken. We've all broken these commandments. They've taken them off the courthouses. I've been to court more times in 2022 and 23 over, I have not no crimes, <laughs> but what I've noticed in the courts is that they say when you raise your hand, they don't say, so help you God anymore. It's not there. They don't say it. That's what I've been experiencing. Um, it's through depositions, through work, and through some of my jobs. But they don't ask you to raise your hand and swear under God anymore. So they've taken God out of the equation. So once they do that, then you know that that hedge of protection is starting to erode and it's no longer being there, just like we see historically with the nation of Israel. The penetrated earth and the heart of stone to flesh promise. Where are the most ugly stones located? Well, they're located in the, as stony hearts. And we understand the Ezekiel New Covenant promise where it says that a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. What is this heart of flesh? And what does it do? And how does it behave itself? And how do we know we have a heart of flesh? Well, I will say that according to Scripture and according to my experience, according to Scripture first as the proof and because of what it says in Scripture, my experience lines up with that particular verse where it says that conviction which is done by the Spirit where it convicts you of sin to know that you've broken those Ten Commandments. That's only Ten Commandments. You've broken everything. We are guilty. Is there anyone here that's not broken any commandments? All right, because I'd say you'd have to come up here and teach. But we've all committed sin, the transgression of God's law. We know that. The Spirit has told us this. We feel remorse because of it. That's the heart that feels its woe. And then the heart that understands, where is this righteousness? Where is this, this uh, perfection that I need to be able to be right with God the Father? And then it shows us a judgment. It shows us where Christ was crucified for our sins, that our sins are taken away. 
Our sins are taken away, that God has cast them as far as the east is from the west into the sea of forgetfulness. It's the heart of flesh that realizes, thank you, God, that you've saved me from my wretchedness because that's what I am. It's not the sins that I've broken. It's not the Ten Commandments I've broken. It's everything that I am, which is wrapped up in every commandment there is that I've broken. I am sin from my federal head, which is Father Adam. But now we have a new father because we've been adopted. We've been adopted because of Christ and his work. So let us cast away from us all of our transgressions. It says in Ezekiel, the same one who spoke of this heart of flesh, in Ezekiel 18.31, let us make good ground. Cast away from you all your transgressions, whereby you have transgressed, and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Isn't that interesting? That prior to verse or chapter 36 here in chapter 18, that he's actually telling them to give yourself a new heart. The very thing that's impossible for us to give ourselves, he is telling them to give themselves a new heart and a new spirit. We know that it's only God that can do those things. But yet there is this thing called man's responsibility. Because when man stands before God Almighty, and when he stands before that great white throne of judgment, he's going to be without excuse because everything he needed was given to him, but yet he refused. Thank God he has saved us. Thank God he saved us because we couldn't do it in and of ourselves. The power of the winepress that is preached. This vineyard that we see would ultimately produce wine, which is what we spoke about when Christ would say, drink this, for this is the blood of the New Testament. Drink this because it was representative of the remission of sins. The power of the winepress. We go in Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3, and we go forward in Isaiah because he's always bringing out the the vineyard and then the winepress. And by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit speaking through Isaiah, he says, I have trodden the winepress alone. Who tread the winepress alone? You see, you're seeing this so far before the cross work of Christ, but yet we see these gospel illusions that would take place in the future. So what do we see? I have trodden the winepress alone. Remember Christ? Do you remember when he was praying? As it were, great drops of sweat, blood were coming down him. Did you know he was in that press? And that he was, he told his disciples, just stay up with me. Stay up with me one hour and pray. They couldn't do it. They were too tired. The spirit was willing. The flesh was weak. They fell asleep. But he was asking, Father, if there's any other way to have this cup pass, nevertheless, let your will be done. Remember our Lord said, I didn't come to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. He had to fulfill this wine press where he himself is the very blessing the very cluster of grapes that is the blessing for us that comes out of this vineyard that he would have to trod in the wine press alone and of the people there was none with me there was none with him he had to tread it alone jesus christ 
was sweating blood. He was being pressed down. If you've ever seen those old-fashioned wine press, and they got those big things, and you got to turn it. And when you're a poor wine maker, you want every last drop of that juice to get in there so it can be fermented, and it's pressing down, and we, it has like a little clicking mechanism that locks it each time you turn it. It goes, click, click. And it's more and more being pressed down, and that wine is starting to come out. That fermented grape, such it was with Christ as he was enduring his father, turning his back on his son because he knew he had to tread it alone. But he both will be the one who will tread it alone for the remissions of our sins, but he will also be the one that will trample down all his enemies in his fury when he comes and judges again. And that blood shall be sprinkled upon his garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For his people he'll do this, and he will come. He is coming. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly as his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In Psalm 60, verse 12, Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. The prophet Joel, if you look at Joel chapter 1, verses 11, he speaks of these vine dressers. These are the ones that were supposed to take care of the vineyard. Joel addresses the farmers and the vine dressers urging them to lament the disaster caused by the locust plague of invaders. Remember, the hedges were taken down, the fences and the walls were removed, and all the invaders were coming in. He spoke of the locust plague affecting not only the drunkards and the priests and worshipers, but it also affected the farmers and the vine dressers. The prophet called these people to lament, saying, Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley. The reason for the call of, to mourning was because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Isn't it amazing that we're not hearing this in any of our politics? Very, there may be a, a voice here, a voice there, but a call to mourning? Can you imagine if Joe Biden got up and said, America, mourn for your sins. Call upon God for what is taking place upon our country. What would happen? But that is not being done. We are far from that. But what will it take for that ever to happen? Or will it ever happen? Saints, I pray that we are spiritual people and that we're calling upon God every chance we get. In Jeremiah 52, verse 16, there's also another event where God is bringing national Israel into bondage, making them into slaves under Nebuchadnezzar. When he came in and he got all those people and he made them slaves, there are a certain group of people that he had left behind to take 
care of the vineyards and the fields. These were the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. I suggest to you that that remnant that was left behind that was able to work the vineyards and the fields were the true gospel preachers and the true worshipers of God that were not taken by this great takeover. God had his people within there, but he also left those to take care of the vineyard and the fields. Who are these people? They're the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Historically, what happens when a nation becomes lethargic, when it's not maintained, it falls into presumption. For it is a day of trouble and of treading down and of perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and of crying to the mountains. These are very sobering words that are spoken to us by Jeremiah, that weeping prophet. We don't want to be presumptuous. Presumption leads to wild grapes and perversion. Micah speaks of this when he says in chapter 6, verse 8, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what, the, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So there's three things we must do, saints. We must prepare in faith, understand that we are property of God, we are his property, but that property is a property of hope. And we have a position, we have a position with God, it is a position of promise. Prepare in hope, and take the position of promise. Prepare in faith. Ask yourselves, where are we? The sower soweth the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that is sown in their hearts. This stony ground, who are they? They've heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, but they take no root in themselves. So endure, but for a time and afterward, when affliction and persecution ariseth, for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And the ones that are in this stony ground, or this uh, thorn, the thorny ground, are choked by the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. These are the things we need to be careful about today. These are all things that have affected me personally. Um, because we're in America, we're in a materialistic land that we need to be careful to maintenance ourselves by the hearing of the word, by the fellowship, to neglect not the fellowship, the gathering of the saints, especially as you see the day approaching. Be careful of the cares of this world. They'll choke you. These, this credit deficit that's coming upon many, many people. I know I'm not alone. Uh, price of gas being $6 to get to church. Uh, a gallon. It's just, it's, it's everywhere. Food prices are going up. These things choke us. But God has been so good to grace. Every, every Sunday, you see this free food out there. I'm like, I just marvel over that. 
we've been so conditioned to go to McDonald's when we could just cook uh, potatoes. And you have all these uh, spices and herbs that are not too much that make everything taste so good. I think it'd be really healthy for us to start going back to the way of cooking. So that's where we are today. Let us remain in his word. Remember, it's his story. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. This is what the psalmist told us in Psalm 97, verses 10 and 12. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Remember, we are the property of God. He owns us, lock, stock, and barrel. We are his. So let us never be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let us... Uh, Understand we are as workmanship, we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God hath prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us understand that in Matthew thirteen forty four, this parable of the hidden treasure, where he speaks of the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, is this speaking of you and me buying a field? No. It's speaking about Jesus Christ leaving glory, coming down and purchasing this field for himself where he will have his vineyard and that his joy was set before him for you and for me who are on his mind. We are in a position of promise. We have all the promises of God and their yes in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen and we give all glory to God because all the promises are yes and amen. In the book of Deuteronomy, which these people, the nation of Israel, should have always been singing as a song in their hearts, where it says in Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or dread them, for it is the Lord our God who goes with you. He will not leave you and he will not forsake you. Isn't that what Jesus Christ promised to his church? I will never leave you nor forsake you. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Fear not was his message to his people. And he also says in Hebrews, by inspiration, guard your heart. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of, heaven, of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him as also Moses was faithful in all his house. And we've been studying that Moses had problems. Moses had issues. But Moses was a sinful man. We're all sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. But he was considered faithful because he kept on pressing on, even when he smote the rock, when he was supposed to talk to it. For this man was counted worthy for more glory than Moses, that is Jesus Christ, insomuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm unto the end. For the vine 
There is a, a different vine that we, are, we do not belong to. Two vines. There is one vine that is God's because we know in John 15, 1, and I'm going to wrap it up here. I'm kind of going over. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. He is the actual vine that produces its fruit. And unless we be connected to that vine, let's put up John 15, 1, and go to verse 2. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. See, God is the vine dresser, and he's doing the maintenance. That's God the Father. God the Son is the vine itself, the true vine. Every branch in me. Verse 3. Now are you clean through the word which I have spoken. And there's what we're seeing here. When we saw in Isaiah verse 4, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, we are now clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The word is what cleanses us. But there is another vine. It's the vine of Sodom, and it is the fields of Gomorrah and their grapes, and the grapes of Gaul. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons and the cruel venom of asp. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 32. You can read it in your own time. But there is that other vine. Let us understand it, speak against it, and tell people that Christ Jesus is the true vine. When they built that last temple that was destroyed in AD 70, it is said by scholars that when they built it, they put the two doors and they had vines coming up through the doors that were bearing forth grapes before they would enter into the temple. But Jesus Christ is not that vine that was destroyed. He is the true vine that was crucified, buried, and rose again so that we can have life. And he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Herein is his father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall, so shall ye be my disciples. And that's where I'm going to conclude tonight. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will direct your path. And just remember, we're all part of this vineyard and we need to continually be maintenanced by the Holy Spirit. Amen.